Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Alan Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the internet. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) In today's episode of The Pleasure Podcast, we speak to Monty Moncrief. Monty is the chief executive of London Friend, a charity working to promote the health and well-being of LGBTQ plus people. The charity also manages Antidote, a specialist drug and alcohol service, which was the first in the UK to observe the rise of chemsex amongst gay and bisexual men. Monty was awarded an MBE in 2018 for his services. We do go to some darker places in this conversation, so do check the notes for the content warning. And if you're feeling particularly vulnerable today, perhaps skip to the second half. It is a joyful conversation and extremely informative for me. Hope you enjoy. We were going to talk today a bit about chemsex as Mm. our sort of headline subject matter. And I hadn't actually heard of the term until about a year and a half ago. How would you define that word? Chemsex is a word really that describes sexual activity under the influence of drugs. For decades, people have taken drugs to go out clubbing, you know, had a couple of lines of coke when they're out in the pub, maybe gone to a club, taken some ecstasy, had a nice dance, pulled somebody, gone home, and they're having sex with the impact of drugs. But this is very different. This is specifically seeking out people to meet, to use drugs, to have sex. Um, The way that we use it is exclusively around gay, bi and other men who have sex with men. It's part of the the gay culture and it's part of culture for lots of people, not just gay people. Yeah, are you telling Um, me that I'm extremely unstreetwise for not having known about it? Well, you know. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Chemsex parties feels to me that it has a huge sensationalism around it. Yeah, because it's kind of sex and it's drugs and it's all a bit kind of new. But actually, I mean, people have been having sex off their face for as long as they've been able to get off their face. There's a lot of people tell us they feel a sense of belonging. They've maybe, you know, moved to London, they're new to the scene, and they feel as though they've got this really intense connection with other people when they're using chem. They feel they're part of a community, part of a culture, if you like. And is it is it usually through an app? Like, How do people find each other in the chemsex world? Well, what the apps seem to do is it gives an immediacy. It opens up ready access to men who are in your vicinity. Right. So you'll see profiles that have kind of like, you know, three guys chilling, four guys chilling. And you'll see things like H&H for high and horny. Or we've seen things like P&P for party and play. I've seen profiles that have GMTV on. And I'm, you, you kind of think, GMTV? Well, that, that's breakfast television. <laughs> <laughs> it's code for G, GHB. 
B, LGBL, M for the methadone, T for Tina, which is a, a, a slang term for uh, crystal, and then the V would be for Viagra, which I mean, you'd need a little bit of help if you'd had that kind of cocktail. Because all of the drugs um, really work to stimulate what we call the sympathetic nervous system, so when you're aroused and excited, but also quite uh, under threat in some ways, so it's your fight or flight response often gets stimulated by these. Problem with your fight or flight response, it wants to make your penis as small as possible and bring your testicles right inside your body. Not ideal. Not ideal. Not ideal. So you have your Viagra to plump things out that aren't actually wanting to get enlarged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And is it true that these sort of parties can last for like a whole weekend? Oh yeah, I mean it's very easy on the drugs to be up and awake and, and still going for that length of time. I mean, the crystal, for example, is a really strong stimulant drug. So one dose is going to keep you up for eight to 12 hours. But of course, the thing is, you have a bit more and you have a bit more and you have a bit more. Methadone, for example, really keeps people going. It's very Moorish that people will want that little bit extra of it. And so, yeah, it's common for 24 hours to become 48 hours to become 72 hours, even slightly longer at times. So, you know, we we get guys ringing us on Monday or Tuesday morning having a really, really difficult calm down. I'm sort of interested to find out if people are calling with problems related to the chem part or the sex part, or if they're very much hand in hand. It could be a range of things that are driving them in, but I think an underlying issue seems to be mental health impacts because of the newer drugs that are there. Crystal in particular seems to have a really, really bad mental health impact. We're seeing some people with psychosis as a result of using it, and we're seeing some people who've been sectioned because of their behaviour whilst they're on I work in central London, um, and so have lots of patients taking part in, um, in chemsex. And for lots of people, it's not a problem. It's part of their lifestyle, yeah. and they enjoy it, and they dabble And in, I think we should remember, for some people, it's a real enhancer of pleasure. It's opened up sexual possibilities that weren't there to them before. They feel really horny. They feel really desired. They feel as though they connect incredibly intensely with the partners that they're having sex with. And so we do have to remember, when we're talking about reducing the harm, that that's actually pleasure here to be had as well. But I was interested in the types of pleasure. So, I mean, I remember in the 90s, it was a very big thing. Those people that were taking drugs and are going clubbing would often be potentially taking ecstasy. Yes. And ecstasy would make people feel very empathically mm-hmm. connected, yeah. very emotionally linked, um, mm-hmm. and you know, enhancing the time they spent together. But I understand that there is a difference to a certain degree with uh, with crystal meth um, and the other drugs in the sense that the intensity is still there, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily about an emotional connection, more a disinhibition so that actually you remove that barrier that allows you to access your fantasies. And so people often act out um, exciting fantasies that they might not necessarily have done so sober. Um, And this can either be a source of great pleasure and great excitement Mm. or a source of great regret. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, people tell us that they may have had sex with more partners than they would have done without the drugs, or they may have felt they'd crossed boundaries. And that can be very, very scary for some people, can't it? Whilst they are some of the factors, I think we've got to remember that most people will take it because it's pleasurable. There are lots of things that people can put in place to try and keep it um, as a more safe um, practice. Like GHB diaries. Yeah, so we some, You sometimes have a master of ceremonies, I remember, mm-hmm. that's probably not the term. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not very down with the kids, as it were. GHB has got a very small distance between um, fun and toxic. Mm-hmm. Oh. So that distance is very small in amount. So, um, so some people will actually break down. Right, you've had your dose. You're not allowed any for an hour. 
Uh-huh. And they'll write down the time and they will be the person managing the dosing throughout the, to keep yeah. it safe. Yeah, and we do recommend people to take their own responsibility with that as well because, you know, while somebody else is there, they're also using drugs, they might slip up. But you're absolutely right, it's a really good harm reduction initiative because if they were to take an extra dose too soon, there is the risk of passing out. Um, and then, of course, there's all sorts of things can happen. And I think I wanted to touch on that. This is not to scaremonger or do anything like that. Yeah. But the issue is because there is such a small distance between fun and passing out Mm -hmm. with GHB, um, the issue of consent comes to my mind. Yeah. And this is something which we've seen emerging in in the past three or four years. More and more people telling us that they've been at parties, they can't quite remember what's happened, you know, because they've maybe had a little bit too much G, um, and they've woken up and there's different people at the party, or they've woken up with a sense of they know somebody's had sex with them. Um, and so it, it can easily cross over um, unintentionally um, into sexual assault. So we've got people who maybe in the heat of the moment will carry on having sex with that person, not realising they've passed out and therefore cannot legally consent. Mm. But we also hear stories, um, and we know the police have some uh, intelligence on this also, um, of more predatory actions happening. So where somebody might be deliberately overdosed, they'll be the person who's selected for a slightly larger dose um, of the drug so the other people who are holding the party can then have sex with them. They're kept in a sedated form for often many hours. Yeah, and sometimes the activity is streamed on the internet. Um, we know there's people will you know pay for um, a, a pass to connect to that activity. Sometimes they can direct that activity. So there's some really really dark things happening. With I haven't that. heard anything about this at all. So it being in the in the news or it being publicised. It's not really been talked about very much. It's a very taboo thing to talk about because although consent is very clear in in a legal sense, but the perception of consent it can feel quite distorted for the guys who are in the moment you know and we have people who are saying well I I was at the party anyway so I kind of felt well everybody who's at the party I have to have sex with them well you can withdraw consent at any time but people feel kind of sort of coerced or don't know any different they they actually think that yes I I consented because I went to the party in the first place as you say and that was my agreement to have sex with all these people Mm. and it's very sensitive if you're trying to support somebody who's exploring their own feelings about what might have happened to them or exploring the the horror that they've realised they've raped somebody mm-hmm. even though the intention's not been there. Um, it, it's a very, very sensitive area to work with people. There's all sorts of barriers around, you know, people don't want to report it to the police, you know, they're scared about the fact that they've had or particularly shared their drugs, yeah. um, they might be prosecuted mm, for that. Of course, of course. Um, and we've got, a, you know, historically not great relationship between the gay community and the police. And I can imagine it would have to be dealt with with great nuance and delicacy because if it wasn't, what you don't want is for it to contribute in any way to fear-mongering, to homophobia, to suddenly parents being terrified about yeah. their children coming out because, mm. oh, well, I've heard about these terrible chemsex parties yeah. and the awful things that can happen there. Yeah. And people in the community sometimes don't want to talk about it because, you know, they're, 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 we, we've worked a lot to gain our equality. We've worked a lot to gain our rights. We've worked a lot to decriminalise the sex that we have. Um, and 
people are fearful that that will be thrown back at us. Yes. You know, uh, we were right all along. We can't dirty, trust you to these behave. dirty queers and aren't they? You know, these dirty junkies and you know that that kind of language and that kind of concept that's thrown back at us. It can be a difficult um, subject to broach. Yeah. For, but for also the side that some people feel like they deserve it. The people, some people feel that the harm that comes to them is deserved and that's expected. I mean, some people, for example, be, um, believe that they will, of course, they'll get HIV. That's what all happens to all gay men. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes the taking of the drugs can be a way to mask um, or soothe other symptoms. You know, there, there are you know, elements of fear, there's distrust, cultural and religious aspects. You know, you come from an environment and you, you sometimes self-medicate to manage that environment. Sometimes for great pleasure. You yeah. know, lots yeah. of people drink alcohol and have a lovely night. Mm -hmm. You know, people can have an ecstasy and have a wonderful night. Mm -hmm. However, there are a smaller proportion that clearly have a very difficult time both before and afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at a very basic level, look at how our community's been discriminated against over time. You know, it's only 50 years since sex between men started to become uh, legal. It's only actually, it's less than 20 years since all of the offences that only applied to sex between men were taken off for statute books. So we've had to fight for that. But if you think about the the experiences that people have growing up, you know, getting these messages from society that you're second class, getting these messages that, you know, the sex you have is illegal or dirty or shameful or sinful. People carry that with them. Absolutely. I think it's a huge burden. And then, I mean, I certainly remember in the 80s through the letterbox, this picture of a tombstone arriving. Yeah. And, you know, it had AIDS or HIV or whatever on the leaflet. And then me thinking, as a, as a young gay kid, and I must have been what? 10 or 11 at this time. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I recognised that there was something very scary about being gay. And not only was there something scary about being gay in the sense that you might be um, excommunicated from your family and from your religion, mm -hmm. um, it was the sense that I could die. And I remember sex and death becoming very intimately linked in my head and mm -hmm. being a problem for a really long time. You know, me avoiding mm -hmm. physical intimacy because I could catch mm -hmm. something. I yeah. could die. My, my mother rang a, a really good friend of mine. I had a couple of two fairy godfathers. Mm -hmm. um, they were, were in their 60s at the time who became really great friends in my early 20s. My mum rang one of them up and said, so how's he doing? And, and, and Paul was like, well, he's, he's fine. What do you mean? It's like, mm -hmm. has he got HIV yet? Oh. Oh my gosh. And I mean, that was the context. And he burst out laughing and said, darling, you'd have to have sex first. <laughs> and that was just so true. I was so scared mm. that actually I pushed myself away from that. I imagine that some people do because of... Absolutely. And, you know, so it might not manifest itself even as, as starkly as that, but it's certainly there in the underlying issues that people bring. So when chems have gone wrong for people, which is the people we work with, so often it's linked to their sense of identity about who they are as a, as a gay or bi man. Um, it's linked to them feeling, you know, not so great about that identity. It's low self-esteem. Um, it's all of those things. We, we know that, that the disinhibition that you, you mentioned earlier on, it just it lets people get rid of shame, anxiety, guilt, embarrassment. And why, and why wouldn't you want that? Absolutely. But of course, the, the thing is, if those things are already present, before you use the drugs, they're still going to be present when yes, you come down yes. from the drugs. And is it sort of self-perpetuating as well then? Because it can be, yeah. If those issues are already there, I think it's more likely that the use is going to become a problem for somebody. Yes. And so we have to deal with that. 
chems are such a leveller. It's happening to people who are in high-flying jobs, mm. you know, who are very intelligent, you know, who are very affluent. It's a very, very broad church. I yeah. think that you know, once you close her off and you've taken chems and you're at a party, you know, everybody's on a level yeah. there. Yeah. And it really is affecting, you know, so many people. Yeah. Do, do you think that sort of age-appropriate LGBTQ sexual and relationship education in schools would go to some way to solving the problem we're seeing. Hallelujah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to start at that young age and we have to start by, you know, people growing up and understanding if this is what I am, it's okay. Yeah. You know, we didn't. We were always taught that what we were growing up to be was completely undesirable. So it's absolutely vital. I think it's really interesting, the national discussion now that's that's ensuing as a result of an amazing programme called No Outsiders, which is teaching children that even though we may be different from one another, nobody should be made to feel like an outsider. It's an amazing story of acceptance and tolerance. Yeah, it's touching on themes of, you know, where that difference is because of the colour of your skin or because you have a disability or because you're a child with two dads or two mums. It's talking in a very broad context, but some protesters feel that the, this is an inappropriate programme and that it's teaching their children to be gay. There's a real misperception of what it is. It wasn't just, it's okay to be gay, it's wrong to be gay. Often it's aligned with religion, it's, but it's not just one religion, actually. No. There's been multiple religions it's associated with. It's going, you cannot teach our children that it's okay to be gay. And that is so ex excluding. Mm. You know, and what a lesson for children to learn right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, you think, I mean, how many times did we hear that growing up? It is wrong. And we heard that both in school yeah. and at home. Yeah. And so getting that from your cultural or family setup or whatever and hearing it from your schoolmates calling everything gay because mm. that was either rubbish or weedy or well, pathetic. Exactly that. I mean, you know, even before you know what homosexual means, kids know the word gay and they say, oh, your trainers are so gay. Yeah. I mean, you haven't got homosexual shoes. Although these days <laughs> I definitely have homosexual shoes. <laughs> you know, but they know that it's a word that is used to describe something naff or undesirable. So from, a, you know, that link is being made so in the language. At such a young age. Did yeah. I tell, when, I was a, when I was teaching, um, I was outed to my class by my very good friend, Martin. Um, who I adore. And so Martin was a co-biology teacher. He was next door to me and um, they were just slinging around the word gay in the classroom as they do. And he's a really good ally. So he basically turned to the room and go, what would Dr. Patel say? How dare you use that word? Mm -hmm. And the sort of, you could see like, apparently the entire room sort of perked up. Mm -hmm. He then ran into the office and was going, oh, I've just outed you. And I was like, you haven't. I'm eight weeks into my job. Mm -hmm. I, and I was, I was 26 years mm -hmm. old. So it felt like a really big thing. Yeah. But actually, it was really liberating mm -hmm. being out and gay at school. And, you know, at one class, I know it was entirely appropriate for them to ask, but they just turned to me and said, sir, do you have a boyfriend? I was like, this is not appropriate for discussion, gentlemen. Um, and they said, no, no, sir, it's actually because we're just seeing if we can set you up with someone. Ah, <laughs> and obviously, wonderful. you know, you have to play that straight. And you have yeah. to, sorry, not straight. You have to play that with, with, as I say, with a straight bath. That's a very cricket analogy. But isn't that interesting that although the act of, being outed was ultimately quite liberating. The fear Absolutely. of the consequences was holding you back. Yeah. And also that somebody felt it was the most terrible thing they could have done to say this aspect of your identity. 
uh, to somebody else. But I love that they tried to potentially set you up with someone because there is such a focus on when we think about homosexuality, well, when we're taught about it, sorry, on sex, on the acts of sex, um, as opposed to relationships. I wonder if education about relationships, as well as the focus on sex and safety and that kind of thing, would be hugely liberating for people. To... Absolutely, I think it would. We think about it, we grew up being perfectly it was perfectly fine for us to understand that a man and a woman could form a relationship and potentially have a family. So why is it mind-blowing for a child to know that two men or, or two women could happen to that? We understood that without having to know that sex happened. Yeah. That's very people, much that what does get brought in, doesn't yeah. it? And if you think about it, actually, you know, it's, some people have to get past the fact that actually the anus is being used as a sexual organ. Mm -hmm. Now, that can be really challenging for people. It can be challenging for gay men sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, actually, they, there is a sense of some, and this is not all the time, but in some people, there's a sense of physical disgust, actually. You know, they have mm -hmm. to get over the fact that what are you penetrating or where are you mm -hmm. being penetrated? Does that unman me? Mm -hmm. You know, am I yeah. now a woman? What does that mean mm -hmm. in terms of my identity um, and my role? Uh, and there's so much that goes alongside you know, being the one that's penetrated. Yes. Yeah. It was always treated with such fear growing up, just thinking about the boys always saying, oh, don't touch me now, or that kind of thing, um, to other boys. But we're, when thinking about lesbians, they treat it like a joke, that there's no threat there because mm. there's no penis. Like, what are they going to do, yeah. really? We hear about people who are kind of like, you know, just looking for the next one on Grindr, mm. you know, even people being at chemsex parties on their apps looking for the next oh, chemsex wow. party, even though there's men there they could be having sex with. Yeah. They're looking for the next hit, if oh. you like, of sex. It's very hunter, isn't it? Search, yeah. search, search, search. It's yeah. that dopamine rush you get from, almost more from the search than you do from achieving. Oh, wow. It's like, imagine when you find like, I, mean, I get this with shoes, when you find the perfect pair of shoes, <laughs> they're absolutely beautiful, you buy them, then it's next. Mm. I want the next pair of shoes. It's not mm. enough that I have a beautiful pair of shoes. Yeah. It's I want the next thing. And it's that search for more and more. You get hit with the drugs. You get hit with porn. You get hit with men. You get hit yeah. with the apps. Yeah. It's that instant culture. You know, the apps have made it possible, if this is what you want, to get sex. I mean, within minutes, you know, you can have somebody around in your flat and be having sex with them if there's somebody that close by. But then it's problematic for those that don't get asked. Because if all of these people are getting sex at, on order, on tap, yeah. and they all have these body shapes that you see via yeah. porn, either the twink shape or the... Um, What's the, the twink shape? So twink is a teenager normally, late teenager, Teenage, uh, yeah, early... Late teens, early twenties. Yes, and it's yeah. sort of fetishizing youth and skinniness. And hairlessness. And hairlessness. Mm. hairlessness. It's quite unpleasant for me because it's the infantilizing of young people. I mean, I think those tribes thing was something I wanted to talk to you about. Because do people um, within the gay community feel that they have to niche themselves within their lane or is cross lane and when you say lane are you talking about the, so these if different i'm body... a twink mm -hmm. i i can embody sex with a twink or potentially with a daddy because that would be my alter ego will you define daddy for me oh sorry a uh, generally an older sometimes furrier man often uh, muscly but sometimes not uh, may or may not wear leather who will take charge of a situation generally yeah. and dominate you but i think you're right there are these jobs i don't know if people feel they have to sort of niche themselves but a lot of people do and i think you know the fact that we've developed names for different types is very interesting I have a personal theory. I'm a bear. I'm a big, hairy gay man. Uh, and I have a theory that the bears always existed.
Dragon. But suddenly there was this boom in bears. And I think that, you know, a lot of gay men hit their 30s and 40s. Couldn't be asked to go to the gym anymore. <laughs> Couldn't be asked to shave their chest anymore. So we then fetishised that. If you're a slimmer um, furry man, you could be an otter. Yes. Oh. You could be a wolf um, or a polar bear if you've got a grey strip down the middle. Yeah. What's a wolf? Oh, a wolf. Um, it's, it's a, a it's sort of mus muscular, older um, otter, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah. There's just so many terms. I mean, I, know, there's, the I mean, you're and populating there's a, no, my forest here. <laughs> 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 yeah. And there's now a twunk, which is when you've been a twink, but you've exercised, oh, so you become uh, a hunk. Oh, uh, yeah. I was a twink and now I'm a twunk. Well, I'm a twunk because Lovely. I'm a hot twink and a hunk Lovely. at the same time. And it's interesting because I think it plays into that sense of what is my identity. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Whilst the mainstream would be, you know, fitter, thinner, um, probably hairless guys, um, there's a new market out there. So the apps that are there, you know, there's the proliferation of them for different body types or different scruff and growler or different sets. So, like so grinder could be, for, so let's say, for the more muscular, slimmer man. Uh, growler for the bearish man. Scruff for the bearded man. And their admirers. And their admirers. So if you, that's the kind of man that you are or mm. that's the kind of man that, that you're, you're after, after mm. you go to those apps. Mm. So in a way, it does open up a lot more possibility. Mm, but it does um, force you to self-define. In terms of maybe your profile, that might not be how you live the rest of your life, yeah, yeah. Um, but it might be the way but that you But it is very much how you your set profile. up your, your advertising. Yes. And people will change their pictures depending on the response they get. <gasps> They'll change the writing, but it might be a couple of emojis. It might be a few parentheses, which work out that you're a top or you're a bottom, yeah, you're a versatile. Yeah. So, you know, you're the penetrated it's or the penetrator. It's very practical, isn't it? It is very practical. It's very utilitarian <laughs> in a way. Yeah. You know, we, but I think we, we've adapted technology. We've harnessed for the most primal urge yeah. you know and if you think I mean one of the first uses of photography was you know under the counter pornographic photos oh. you know one of the first uses of home video cameras was to make homemade porn and now you've got Xtube where people can you know upload their own um, homemade porn and loads and loads of sites and you know loads of social media that you can put this on if you think Tumblr recently just closed uh, it's all its adult content and there was a real outcry about it and there was an outcry not necessarily just because people were accessing porn but because people were accessing niche porn mm. so particularly for people who like you know maybe had a queer identity rather than just a gay identity mm. or were into certain tribes actually that 
provided a sense of community. Yeah. And I played with the groups. The reason you got the groups is you'd have all the likes below and you'd have comments and people would interlink. You know, you would follow each other and potentially you might message each other. And the fact that that then gets lost because you disrupt that community, you find it in a different way. Um, however, you know, it's the sort of gentrification of Tumblr that was a real shock to people. Yes, yeah. But I think I've got to admit, since I found the nice Hairy Bears app, you know, it did change <laughs> my smorgasbord. sex life. Really? It did absolutely change my sex life. It gave me a platform. It yeah. gave me a, a marketplace, yeah. if you like, that you don't often find. So yes, there are bars and clubs that are, you know, appealing to more appealing to one section of the community than other. And there are bear bars. But actually, the apps just opened up a, a different way of, of me being able to to meet people, they can be a really positive influence, really positive factor if you are a niche market. Now, I mean, I, when I go to a gay bar, it's often with people, if they're single, they're on their phone. They're not actually looking or scoping oh, really? the crowd. Mm -hmm. Previously, before, you'd see men sat at the counter looking at other men, mm -hmm. and people would be making eye contact so and what, smiling. So what are they doing on their phones? They are on the apps. They're on the apps. They are looking phones. for yeah. someone else who might be who in the might same be in room. The bar, yeah. yeah. Or might be in you know the bar next door, but you or missed a hundred feet down the road. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so this is extraordinary that you could access people, as you say, mm -hmm. that you might otherwise never come into contact with. So this is what I didn't understand: the drugs aren't just like ecstasy or cocaine might mm. make you feel extremely confident, or suddenly you don't have the same inhibitions that you might have had mm. before, but they also make you want to have sex, make you really horny. Yeah. So what, what element of the drug is that? Which well, I think it's the context in which right. it's being used. Right. So we've seen where crystal meth is being used in, say, poorer rural communities. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, it can be associated with violence. It can be associated with um, a fixation on a task. So we hear about people being so, you know, wired and they'll like take a radio apart and put it back together and take it apart and put it back. It's that fixation on a, on a task. And I think that in a sexual context, it's that pursuit of sex uh -huh. that becomes the fixation. Okay. And the kind of, you know, the, 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 the act of sex, the repetitive motions of sex mm. lend itself to that as well. But I think it's, uh, it's a drug which enhances the, the dopamine. So you've got that pleasure yeah. um, aspect going on. And if you associate that, that with thinking I'm in a sexual context and I'm horny, yeah. that's really going to intensify it. And so I feel close to everyone around yeah, me and I've had yeah. this amazing experience. Do you yeah. have people coming to you who feel that now actually it's quite hard for them to have sex without drugs? All the time. It's a, it's one of the biggest issues I think that we have. We're working with people who um, who never do or even never have had sex um, without drugs, wow. and the it's one of the biggest challenges I think of moving away from chemsex into um, sober sex. The, that's the, the term we're using for it. Because you've got to work on all those anxieties that chems were taking away. You're going to work on all those inhibitions that chems were taking away. So we actually bring that into a lot of our programmes. So we do one-to-one -one work with people, but we also do group work programme as well. But I think what's really important is the fact that once that ends, you don't just stop there, do you? Because you yeah. have a peer support. That's right, yeah. There's a way for guys who've been through the programme to still connect. I can imagine after 
having sex in those sorts of situations when you're on a lot of those sorts of drugs, mm. getting back, going to sober sex might feel like having sex with like terrible strip lighting on all of a sudden and no music, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Exactly, it feels like that. For me, it always seemed like the volume's been significantly turned down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually, how do you get used to something seeming almost bland? Yeah, and, and to be yeah. vulnerable as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. And so we're talking about intimacy. I don't know if we mentioned the intimacy that people find in chemsex, but it's a physical intimacy um, and it's a false emotional intimacy often. So they feel very connected, but actually when they're, when they're coming down or the week after they've been using it the weekend, they feel quite emotionally um, disconnected. And they, they tell us time and time again, I'm not getting that emotional intimacy yeah. from chemsex. What I really want is to have a partner, to have that emotional connection, to do those things that we do that aren't just sex-based yeah. as well and have that connection there. Sometimes I think gay men really want emotional connection. Yes. The amount of people who tell us they want the same thing but feel that they're not able to get it because they feel nobody's offering it and you just, if we could just shift this narrative a little bit away from the focus on sex to the focus on good, proper connections, we could kind of be delivering people what they really want and everybody could be getting what they want rather than thinking they can't have it. But it is interesting when you look at profiles now, and we do a lot of work with people around amending their profile or thinking ah. about what their profile says if, they, if they're not looking for chem. And you will get people explicitly saying no chems, no bareback, uh, no high and horny, no hookups, and they're looking for old-fashioned dates. Yeah. And of course, whilst the technology does facilitate quick sex, it also facilitates connections, yeah. and it's about what you do with that connection. I mean, there's certainly very much the conversation about app behaviour. It mm. sort of, um, it removes the kindness sometimes. It allows you to either dismiss someone, either by not responding to them at all, mm. or responding in a way, you know, that's just as if, mm. as if I'd go anywhere near you. Yeah. Um, which can be really damaging because that's then if you're a newbie to these apps, that's the lesson you learn about how you behave to others. Mm -hmm. And I think that's problematic. Um, however, no, I, I completely take your point about opening your world to a whole range of people that you wouldn't have normally met within your environment. It feels like potentially, I'm not sure if I know exactly where I'm going with this, but whether <laughs> there is a connection with growing up for some people, with a lot of shame, not being able to be who they are, keeping your secret. Mm. And then if you do come out, and when you do, sort of having to fully engage with that potentially quite sexualized, highly sexed mm -hmm. culture. It is this all or nothing. And whether that's replicated in what you're talking about, Anna. I think very much, I, I, I do wonder sometimes what would happen if I was born 10 years later. Mm -hmm. oh. And had I not received that leaflet on the doorstep yeah and the apps were there when I came out say if I had the same levels of actually I need to behave that I did have as a child um, because you want to hide you want to be ingratiating you want to not be seen you want to not stand out because someone might found out your secret which is that you're gay mm. but then if you layer on the top the fact that actually being Asian wasn't brilliant at my school and then being fat and bald at 50 I had all these reasons going okay look just curl up and so just nothing no, everything just slides off you know, no, no one ever challenges you um, and you get to a point now where I, I'm very much accepting of who I am and the place I'm in, but that's taken a particular journey. Now, had I approached that in a faster manner, if, for example, I was 18 or 19 and I was coming out and I had the sexual scene 
being particularly more available and I was feeling um, anxious or whatever, would I have put myself into these situations and then loved it? Part of my worry is that I would have absolutely loved all the drugs mm. and I would absolutely loved all the sex with various people all the time. I mean, that isn't my story, but actually I think sometimes it could have been my story. Yeah. It's just a, a, a life lived differently. Mm. It's yeah. an alternate. How was it for you growing up? Well, I, it took me ages to come out. I mean, my coming out was such a protracted process. It took about 15 years in total to come out from the first moment I said it to you know to being out to everybody it was just I mean I knew there was something different but I didn't necessarily know what it was and I think that's common for a lot of LGBT children you know there's something which sets you apart from your peers even though you can't verbalize it or conceptualize it and I grew up in that environment where you know we just didn't see gay people and when we did it was like it wasn't positive portrayals so I remember two portrayals in particular. One was Mr. Humphreys on uh, Are You Being Served? Of course. Oh. Humphrey <laughs> character. So you think, well, that's what I'm going to be like. And then I saw a programme when I was maybe about sort of 13 or 14 late night on TV. And it was a programme about rent boys and their, their clients. And it was about these, you know, sort of really unhappy mostly middle-aged, not terribly good-looking men who used rent boys. And it was a really dismal portrayal of their lives. I remember, you know, being absolutely shocked because it's the first time I'd heard about water sports and just thinking, <laughs> my God, that's what I'm going to grow up to be because there were no positive images that I could associate with that. Yeah. So I covered up for a long time and I had a relationship with a woman um, between sort of being about 17 and 20. Um, but I knew that I was gay. I, you know, during that whole time, I'd found a way to access gay pornography and that's what I was using to wank with. But when I did come out, it was a really liberating thing the first time. I had an unusual circumstance in that uh, two other friends and I all came out to each other on the same night. No. Yeah. So and did really, you know? I mean, had you? I suspected the male friend. I had no idea it was the female friend. My lesbian dart to this day is rubbish. <laughs> you know, I can talk to a woman for like a, an hour and not realise until she suddenly drops something in about her, her, her girlfriend. And I'm like, why did that not click? <laughs> um, and it just was the circumstances of the evening that we all ended up blurting it out to each other. But it was a source of support around me, you know, and I knew we had to just embrace this and just go, do you know what? This is an amazing opportunity to explore this and support one another. And then I kind of sort of, you know, came out in drips and drabs. I was at university, I wasn't out to everybody, but um, a lot of people in the gay society knew that I was gay. I moved to London, essentially I moved to London to be able to come out. Um, but it still took me a while. I felt like a bit of an outsider in the gay scene. The bars and clubs were terrifying actually for me and you know then we found one or two which we were like actually this one's all right this is okay but you felt know felt a bit more comfortable felt a bit you. more comfortable what was yeah so scary about that i think it was this kind of like unknown world and you ju you really judge yourself against completely unrealistic criteria but then i think um for me my my greater confidence came out i volunteered for the lesbian and gay switchboard uh, lgbt switchboard now and it was a way of meeting other LGBT people, but not out in the scene. We met and interacted in a way where the sexual, not the chemistry, that kind of sort of sexual frisson, frisson wasn't there like it was in the bar. So there were different permissions for the way that you engage with people. Yeah. Um, 
And, um, and eventually, I mean, it led me to working in the LGBT sector. Do you feel that there's a big, because you've been in this game for a while now, helping these 20 people. 20 odd years, yeah. Is there a big difference from when you started out to now, the sorts of stories that you're hearing, the sorts of people that are calling up, or is it the same? Well, I'm not on the phone lines anymore, but in just in terms of what I know from, you know, people coming into our services, mm. there is a difference, um, but there's a lot that's still the same. So there's a lot of, you know, need for people to get support coming out still. And I think we run coming out groups at work that we've ran since the early 70s. Mm. The issues people bring into them might slightly change. Um, but I think there's a perception now that people have about it's easier to come out. Then people can put more pressure on themselves thinking, well, why is it not so easy for me? Huh. And so it's, a, it's an additional sense of stress that's there. But I think the chemsex work we do, so much about identity. The counselling we do, so much about identity. The groups we do, so much about identity. So that sense of who we are as LGBT people, that's still the essence of all the support I think LGBT organisations offer and people are still trying to find you know who we are in this great wide world you know there's a better sense of who we are now but it's still it's still a struggle for individuals it sounds like you're building a brilliant home for people really <laughs> well hopefully yeah and it, home's a nice way of describing it it's probably the closest london has to a, an lgbt community center mm. It's very important for us to kind of create that environment where... It's a really safe space. It's a safe it? space. We're role modelling, you know, we're projecting images of positive identities as LGBT people. I was really thinking about the figures, because obviously I understand that people will be hearing chemsex and that this is a problem in the, in the gay community. How big or small a problem actually is this? Yeah, it's really difficult to quantify actually. So the best available data that we have at the moment is from four years ago, um, which was the Gay Men Sex Survey. They looked at lifetime use of any of the drugs and it was about 8% uh, had ever used crystal, about 12% had ever used G and about 16% had ever used methadrone. This is over their entire lifespan. This is over their entire lives. It's a self-selecting sample of gay men who are responding about their health. Um, so it, it's the minority. So I think you're right, the perception can be everybody's at it. And a piece of research I read where somebody was saying, well, you know, oh, 90% of the guys around you are, are all engaged in cancer. Well, the figures just don't back that up. Mm. And it can be quite interesting when we reflect back to people, you know, this thing that you're involved in that's all around you, actually, the majority of people who are gay aren't engaging in this. And that's quite an eye-opener for people. The, the data has recency. So if you'd used any of those chemsex drugs in the past um, four weeks, it was only 6.6% 6, 6 in England, I think, but it leapt to 14 point something percent in, in London. So a disproportionate issue within big urban areas. And actually the data looked at um, use by men who were living with diagnosed HIV, yeah. And it leaps again. So we've got, we, it was a third of game by men who are living with diagnosed HIV in London had you used a chemsex drug in the previous four weeks. Do you think that the advent of PrEP, so this is pre-exposure prophylaxis where you're able to take a medication each day that will reduce, almost stop your risk of receiving HIV, is that correct? Well, it's one of the tools in the arsenal that we didn't have before. Um, you know, it's only one method. Obviously, we've got availability of PEP, the post-exposure, if you have had an HIV risk, 
also encouraging people to test more regularly so that if they are um, positive, it's diagnosed much earlier and we can get them onto treatment. And effective HIV treatment reduces the level of the virus in your body to an undetectable level. So you will not pass that on. That's um, the incredible so that's... thing. They took a series of couples, didn't they, where mm. one of the couple had HIV and the other didn't. Mm. And they had unprotected sex for a period of time. Um, mm. I think it was you know, a significant period. I think it was over a year. Mm. Um, and not one of the couples transmitted HIV mm. to the other um, yeah. partner. Yeah. So it's an incredible game changer in terms mm. of limiting transmission. Yes. And I think for yeah. the first time uh, last year, there was a drop in HIV yes, cases, diagnosis. first diagnosis, yeah. which is the first time it's ever happened. Which within I think, gay men. Within We've gay men. We've not yet seen that drop within other um, significantly at risk communities like black African communities, um, but in gay men it's, it's dropped. And I think it's that combination of gay men are more clued up about treatment as prevention, about U equals U, and about PrEP. And I, it was interesting you said there they had unprotected sex. What they had was condomless sex because of course PrEP mm. is protected sex, U equals U is protected sex when it comes to HIV. Obviously that doesn't offer protection against STIs um, and other STIs, condoms remain the best method of preventing other STIs. But we have, we have to change the dialogue a little bit about HIV prevention. I stand corrected, thank yeah. you. <laughs> If any of the issues you've heard about today have affected you or anyone you know, you can find out more at londonfriend.org.uk. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoyed this, you can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help other people find us. Give us five stars, you lovely lot. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. And Sam Smith for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and, of course, pleasure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.